Hi, this is Shum Podcast, a new series where we talk about emerging vectors in art, theory, pop culture, tech and beyond. For the very first episode, we are joined by Jelena Viskovic, an artist and software developer and a lecturer in game design at UCL. Jelena was in Ljubljana for her solo show titled Volumes New Babylon with Projekt Atul Institute and we sat down with her at Osmosa to discuss her work. Thank you for inviting me. I am an artist and a software developer, and in my art practice, I work across a different media, mostly sculpture and installation. And I'm a software developer as well, mostly because my background is in game design, so I incorporate um, game design practices in my sculptural and installation work. So you're in Ljubljana now for a couple of days already, and you're preparing for a solo show uh, with Projekt Atul in Osmosa project space. The show is titled Volumes New Babylon. Can you tell us a little bit about what the installation that you're preparing entails and what is New Babylon? It's a reinterpretation of a project of the same name by Constant Nguyenhees from the 60s or the project actually um, he worked on it throughout his whole artistic life. So it's a project that lasted for 20 years. And my interpretation is through this lens of volumes and world building. I really got into this project initially because I became interested in the revival of 60s aesthetics through um, popularized New Age movements. and. Apart from this, I also think that it is a really cool-looking project and it looks like something that is way beyond a trend or an era. Uh, but now I see it kind of also fitting into very much a trend and I see YouTube videos about where people compare it to like Burning Man, for example, which I think is quite funny. But interestingly, I also think that it is a very subversive project as a response to the conventions of the art world or also architecture especially at the time, um, and it is based in the idea of someone from the outside trying to understand architecture and urbanism. And I think it's very interesting that Constant spent his whole life working on this one project, so it's something that really kind of transformed and changed across the course of 20 years, which I think is in itself really interesting. Um, and I see it very much as an invitation to be reinterpreted, which is also why I'm interested in engaging with it. And uh, the installation you're working on, what, it, what does it consist of? In a way, it's literally a volume, uh, because it takes this idea of stage design that is used in um, the film industry that is based in creating volumes made out of light, out of LED walls, where a world that is built in uh, a game engine is rendered and played out real-time and responds to the space of the actual set. So one of the aspects of, insula- of the installation is that, uh, this volume environment, and within that there is um, a variation of also Constance's work called Playful Stairs, where um, this playful environment is created out of very basic materials like uh, plywood, which is just suspended, um, where people can climb on and, and reinterpret it as they want and play with it. But in my version, it isn't so interactive in that sense. So it's inhabited by these intermediary objects that are kind of also situated within the world building of the film that's displayed on the LED walls. Um, And these objects are something that is also an invitation into this world, but they are also occupying this space together with the visitors. So in a way, it's this ambient volume environment. 
these playful elements that you're mentioning. Is this one of the ways how you relate to Constance ideas as well? Because in the short text that you provided for the like the show and the description of the project, you you mention also this playful man or like a Ludens as this inhabitant of Constance city of the future. So maybe before we start delving into how you address this with these new technological tools, what was fascinating for you in this idea in the kind of in the history of architecture, especially in Constance's work, and how do you somehow translate that? Why do you think this is important today, like, to address it again? I think, actually, ironically, New Babylon, especially the idea of homoludens, is something that I would like to engage with in a critical way as well. Also, as someone who is working a lot with um, games and culture and games-related theories, um, and this is something that isn't usually talked about in relation to Constance ideas, but homoludens is the idea that's based on this book of the same title, which is actually, I think, a really, really bad book, where, of course, this idea of homoludens is oh, basically a white creative man who is um, changing his environment as he pleases and is the manifestation of his desires. And beyond that, the book Homo Ludens is a, an example of a comparative anthropology book, which is something also that happens a lot in game design, where it looks at um, how different societies play or approach creativity and compares that to one another without any actual basis. And in general, it's, it, it's a very, very racist book that's also kind of hard to read. And it's extremely conservative especially actually for its time when also there was a massive wave of the criticisms of these things and the colonial movements. So um, it's also something that I would like to reinterpret and, and engage with a constant invitation to play with this space by creating different kind of actors in this world and position them in dialogue with each other instead of just saying, okay, this space is for... <coughs> the creative individual and the manifestations of his desires. I mean, he's related to situationism, right? And also this critique of capitalist city and spectacle that this type of city and urbanism somehow forces on its inhabitants and how it reproduces or somehow trains or where the city is just a training ground for this capitalist subject, right? And then constant ideas were somehow like, what would be an alternative to this? What would be some different experiences that the city can produce? But at the same time, like what you're describing now, just relating to this subject of a creative white man you know you can you can critique this idea like um from feminist or situated perspective which you also um do so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how do you do this actually like how do you approach it from this perspective yeah the situations were inspired by something they called the unconscious quality of architecture um, that can be understood through practices of psychogeography, and they actually would go out into the city high and try to find these experiences and this unconscious quality of the city. And this leads also to really interesting um, interpretations of this afterwards. Um, there is a, an architect and theorist called Mark Whitley, who talks about this idea of radical hospitality, which I think is really, really interesting and is also personally very interesting for me. It basically means that um, instead of welcoming the strangeness or just welcoming the other person, you're welcoming the strangeness of the other person. So it's kind of an extreme hospitality in which the strangeness plays role itself instead of just kind of the act of welcoming or the performance of it and in a way this is how I approach my creative process as well by compi combining things that I don't necessarily fit together at the first glance but also and kind of in, in the practice as well where I'm combining things from the industry or from game design that don't necessarily fit together with artistic things uh, a perfect example of this for example is um 
I don't know, game design and weaving, which of course would be very much criticized from a game designer's perspective, but actually, if you think about it, it literally relates to each other. The other thing that I find really interesting in this is that being an immigrant or being from a diaspora really puts you in kind of a groundless position where you're constantly a stranger or you're suspicious to the other. And in a way, I find this idea of of the acceptance of the strangeness really, really helpful also for the acceptance of my practice, but also for self-acceptance as someone who is from a diaspora. Uh, yes, maybe uh, we can connect this to your saying to your collaborative project with uh, Federico Campania. It seems like uh, the objectives in the game, even though it wasn't really realized, but more just uh, the stage was set and the narrative, are quite different from what we perceive as what normal games are for. For example, the objective is not necessarily based on winning or, um, I don't know, it seems like games as mediums are used for different uh, capacities. Like, it seems like you are trying to explore what games could be outside of this um, gamified world. I think with the way that Federico and I approached this project, it definitely turned out being that, but it was very much about kind of turning his ideas in relation to philosophy or very specifically classical metaphysics into processes and then seeing what happens. So I think in that sense, it does relate to this idea. It struck my mind how interesting it is that, for example, a concept that is so prevalent in Mm -hmm. the art world, like world building, can be explored really well within the medium of games. For example, it feels quite differently when, I know, you actually can play a certain, I know, characters or even processes within this artificial world as if only, I know, theorizing about them or just kind of speculating. It's kind of a different dimension to it. Mm -hmm. Especially if we take into consideration that this Again, world-building aspect of Nelson Goodman, all worlds are reconstructions of existing worlds and how, like, um, even probably Federico Campania has this idea of cultures being a kind of fictions. So it's in- interesting how radically games kind of envelop this perspective to its fullest. Yeah, I think that it's also because connecting it to somehow to, to the way that I was approaching the design of this game is that it's um, in general the difference between kind of world building and world building within games is that world building in fiction for example is is kind of creating a world around of, from which narratives can emerge and within games it's creating a world where things can emerge out of actions so the world is there to to interact with it in a way and in that sense, I think it really corresponds well to kind of to thought experiments or to um, questions within philosophy, where it's kind of a testing ground to see how these behave. Basically, it's kind of about behaviors. But also in this game, it was really interesting. It was again this creating this situation in which different conversations can happen. The game was based on uh, having different characters who all embody different ideas from classical metaphysics and then making them all play the same game or not even play the same game but try to occupy the same territory and then looking at how they see it and how they behave in it. Also the work Volumes New Babylon is somehow has a similar approach. It's, it has different voices that represent different maybe approaches to this space or to this world um, or different perspectives. One of the, one of the voices you call it you call it the architect that the aim um, of this story is to see if uh, she likes this vision so in a way to kind of test out the world and see how it feels to live in this kind of world I guess this is connected also to creating of different experiences 
that the city can provide what Constant was going after. The games somehow are the tools that enable us to ex- experience, test out these different situations. And then, I might be wrong, but I think like what Ma- Max was aiming at was the difference how you use games. You know, you can like just recreate the same world, reproduce, perpetuate the same experience, or you can actually try out different relationships or different experience of, I don't know, physics or gravity or like how is the experience this world offers different to the one maybe Constance world offered or Constance vision offered or like to the one that is the like the uh, the normative one today that we live in mm-hmm. i really tried to create characters where where um the development of the characters is not kind of imposed on them that much but it happens through conversations between them or actually through these very personal experiences or seeing just a very, very small chunk of the world and then how, how seeing that small chunk of the world uh, appears to them. Basically, that's what the whole script or the story is about. But what are these three voices? One is like from an animal channel or like, you know, yeah, the, yeah, it's yeah. like this very typical narrator of nature documentaries or... Yeah, the one of the voices is, <clears throat> is a narrator who's... Um, who's from this position that knows everything from the bird's eye view and the narrator kind of talks at this world and there is this, uh, it's kind of based on this, um, I, I, I somewhere read this really funny thing that, I don't know if you know David Attenborough, he's, he's this super, super famous British yeah. uh, nature yeah, documentary <laughs> filmmaker and he's amazing with the way I read that he, he's like this, uh, the colonial British voice <laughs> who's, who's like narrating the world from the middle of the rainforest. And it's not necessarily that, but I have a feeling that the voice of the architect and the kind of the storyteller, the narrator, or this kind of documentary that who's explaining this world is very much like this. Also, the voice of maybe the theorist who is interpreting New Babylon. Um, so wait, so you have this narrator, which is somehow like David, David, uh, David Attenborough, yeah. New Babylon, and then you have the architect. The architect is a generic. Term and the architect is used because in Constance, the idea of New Babylon, everyone is an architect. So the architect could actually be anyone. Like a citizen or a user of this city. Yeah, somebody who's trying to find a ground in this space. Okay. Somewhere it's mentioned that it's about like a floating city. There is a floating, a vision of a floating city inside of it. Um, because it's something that could be placed somewhere above or somewhere that's hard to be reached or somewhere that's isolated. It's more of an image rather than a real place or the place that's where like this action is taking place. I'm mentioning this because finding ground in a city that is constantly changing, that's like somehow yeah, exactly. kind of an impossible task, right? The, the architect in your story is actually this user of the city um, that's constantly changing and is trying to, to situate themselves somehow in the city or like to test out the vision of this narrator. It's a vision of different references. It's combined also from, um, from exhibition um, texts from the time afterwards and um, some of my additions to that to kind of connect the different strands of the story. And the architect is also kind of trying to understand this idea, trying to build a world based on this idea, and then also it's kind of this uh, almost like coming-of-age story where you realize that what you think is true is maybe not so true, and then you're trying to figure it out, and then you're a little bit frustrated because everything is a lie or something or everything is a construct and then you're trying to make a sense of that. So it's a little bit like this romantic um, character as well. And then there's the third voice. Yeah, the third voice, I'm really into rocks as characters (laughs) because partly uh, it's also something that came from the game that we did with Federico, which included one of these uh, kind of ontological entities that's playing the game was a rock and that was the one who can see everything in the game who can see others others visions as well but isn't playing any kind of type of game or isn't playing a zero-sum game isn't playing against anyone it's just kind of this ambient space that sees 
And uh, I think that in this project, it has a similar role. It's almost like the exact opposite of the narrator. So it has some kind of like a magical aspect to it. Yeah, the type of knowledge that, you know, if you think of a rock, it really sees everything, it accumulates everything over kind of the course of geological time and it doesn't necessarily care about our human perspective of the world. So it's really, I think, an interesting manifestation of, of embodied, grounded knowledge. But these rocks, they're in a circle, so they are somehow like already a place. They are in a, some kind of arrangement, so some kind of architecture. They're yeah. like a magical circle, right? Yeah, there is this um, idea in games that there is a magic circle and then the other reality is happening there. And I think that that's really interesting, especially in relation to volumes and this kind of the circle of the volume where the film is being filmed. But it's also the opposite of actually how, how urbanists and how people who think about play in urban settings try to understand it. They are very critical of this magic circle idea and they see the city as like this infinite playground where anything can take place. But I think that the magic circle is actually quite interesting as also this kind of comforting space or a space where which is isolated and kind of hard to cross into. So in the story, the architect finds a magic circle and then basically that kickstarts the story or this kind of other reality that takes place. Maybe on a tangent, I would like to ask you about the difficulties of being a game designer in the art world. Because when I was thinking about games, they involve multiple people. I know there's a lot of money that has to be invested in these projects. Um, user experience is of vital importance. Everything has to be done right to keep the engagement. So alternatives in the art world usually contain very small bunch of people or even individual artists. So objectives are quite different and constraints vary drastically. So for example, how do you manage this resource depletion or how do you work within these constraints? How to still produce something that has, I know, value insight or whatever yeah this it's uh, the answer to this question is that it's very very difficult because i think that the art also has this kind of approach to user experience and technology but it tends to conceal it whereas um, it tends to conceal its workflows it tends to obscure its relationship to technology unless it is about technology and then it's almost creating it where it doesn't even exist whereas I think even in the film industry and the games industry especially, everything is about creating a very rigid workflow and not being hacky actually. And and this is also why, unfortunately, there's not that much innovation at the moment in games. Um, and it is really, really difficult to occupy kind of this, uh, again, going back to the radical hospitality, this space in between. Um, but it's also very interesting to take aspects of one or the other and try to place them together. And I'm in general very interested, even when I design games, how you can create kind of uh, affordances that aren't so straightforward. That like, okay, you press the button and then and then you shoot someone or something explodes or or I don't know, you a text pops up. But how do you create kind of an ambient space? the inhabitants of this space can occupy and create something themselves or create unexpected things um, where you're not imposing too much, but you're also not making people feel helpless or completely passive either. I know you're familiar or also a part of Strelka Institute. And I think that now, unfortunately, it was disbanded. But nevertheless, um, I feel like that another difficulty is that these projects are quickly abandoned or, or quickly lose traction. It's hard to sustain them because of this lack of resources, lack of engagement, lack of PR. The fact is that games are user-based, they crave interaction, games are alive, they need to have this network effect in order to function properly. So it's really interesting and hard to successfully solve this problem. Because, yeah, even, even within the, like, 
commercial games, the competition for users is so drastic that you have these monopolistic relationships all over again and League of Legends is know, the most popular MOBA in the last know, 12 years. So yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting to see that how could such experiments go beyond simply like a proof of concepts or, or something like that to be really uh, used? Yeah, my my answer to this actually, or this this is something that <laughs> really helped me deal with this problem is also going into education and realizing that it's that maybe the problem with it is that it's something that will happen across multiple generations, and I'm really looking forward to see how people who I'm teaching take these different perspectives and then maybe bring them back into the industry or bring them back or create their own thing. Maybe this is not the answer that you wanted to say, but I really don't have a, a, a different solution to that. And my answer is that I'm trying to do this at the moment within arts because I think for there's not that, man, that much space for the in-betweens um, just in terms of infrastructure and funding and um, institutions that want to see this. But I think that maybe it will happen over time. And I think that it is really important to kind of embed this knowledge into spaces that exist now and aren't so open to it. And maybe they will become at some point. So I do really believe in education in that sense or doing this through education because also it seems that, you know, places like Stelka and the reason why these projects couldn't really exist afterwards is because it's actually like it, only Stelka is the place that, that supports them or only these places are, it, when it tries to go somewhere else, then there's this problem that there's like a lack of support for it, basically. Yeah. But I don't know if it's a good thing. Maybe it will just have forever stay in academia and education. It, it's really an experiment. It's, it's a really, really, truly experimental thing. Um, and I have very complex feelings about it. I have very complex feelings about Stelka and my experience with it and my experiences also with these projects because it's hard to place them afterwards. But I've also definitely learned a lot and I'm able to use this knowledge to then apply to my own art practice. I think that art world and uh, philosophy are kind of faced with similar problems. How can I know uh, feels like art world or philosophy that always have the difficulty of implementing their ideas or actually transform the world through uh, this kind of um, radical rethinking be successful in this attempt. I was just reading this article by Tobias Ries. Uh, he's the CEO of uh, Transformation of the Human School, like adjacent institution to Strelka. I think it's based in Los Angeles. And he has this lovely article of uh, GPT-3 being a philosophical laboratory. And he's basically saying that nowadays companies like OpenAI are so radically transforming the fundamentals of our society that they are actually transforming the conceptual basis upon which our world is based. So, for example, he's showing how this diagram between, I know, that, that was constitutive of the Western epistemology, let's say, of uh, culture, nature, and human is kind of, uh, no, no, not culture, by technology, nature, and the human is kind of going through its own transformation with GPT-3 or, yeah, that, that's basically his argument. So, so it's really like, um, yeah, I interesting to not only make sense, but, but how to like, uh, how to respond to this uh, predicament uh, where, for example, I know engineers are becoming the new philosophers or you see like the terrain is kind of shifting. So yeah, maybe maybe, maybe if you have some thoughts on that or... I'm not super, um, I'm not really an expert in AI and I see it, it's hard for me to make the leap to not see it as a scary thing um, just because of the way that it kind of reproduces systems of extraction in a very, very scary way. And for me, it's hard, hard, hard to make the jump into the, okay, like, just don't care about that and, and to see it in this kind of conceptual, speculative way. I, I think that it, it's something that you can look at in this kind of isolated way or, yeah, but it's also something, this is completely true what you're saying. I don't necessarily think that this is the answer, though, to this problem of um, 
translation in general from either one discipline to another or from one practice to another or uh, from something actually being successfully implemented into the real world. I don't think that AI is the answer to this, but maybe it is the reality of it. It's, re it's an interesting idea. How do you see the tools that you're using, like for example for volumes, you used um, Unreal Engine, right? Um, and this is the the, the most um, sophisticated tool to create these kind of virtual worlds or and also the, it's super hyper-realistic and offers like a very immersive experience and also you mentioned also this virtual studio production like production studios where actually the atmosphere of or like the light within the virtual scene because of the LED screens that emits light somehow also lights the scene in the real world somehow so in a way these are the tools that are used to create contemporary spectacles somehow and the experience of immersion and what situation is would be super critical you know of. Yeah. so that you don't have you know any kind of critical distance towards it so but at the same time this immersion is needed if you want an experience, right? So if you want actually to test out the world and how it means to live in it, you need to somehow, at least for a moment, forget about the world you're in, right? Yeah. So how do you navigate like these two, like... It's really interesting. I think, um, of course, I, in, initially when I just proposed this project, I think I was, I was reading about New Babylon and I, was, and I thought, okay, maybe this is a good opportunity to do it because it's also a technology related space. And it started off as, um, a bit of this, like, what would have they done if this technology was available in this kind of what if scenario? And then okay, I think, like, for, if constant would have, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. because he was painting his series, right? Yeah, and I think it's, that was also yeah. the aim of it that uh, he deliberately didn't build anything. It was something under constant transformation. It is actually the first time that I did use Unreal Engine because I was I was very anti this type of realism, and in the previous work that I've done, um, it's very visible that it has a. A very very stylized aesthetic, so it's not not this kind of um, world building at all. And the reason why why I did in then choose to do this is because I wanted to basically test out. I wanted it to be more narrative and less kind of this systemic speculative thing and more narrative. And I thought that actually, if I want to do an illustration of something, this is the best tool. And um, and if I want to do something that responds to this idea of the volume and film sets, it's also the best tool. But I am very, yeah, I will see whether I will work with Unreal Engine very soon again. <laughs> but uh, what I found interesting when we, uh, when you were explaining me how, how it works, the Unreal Engine and like, what are, what are the possibilities? The case that it's not like, you don't model every object or it's not a library of model of 3D models in terms of that like there were some 3D artists that modeled every piece of rock, you know, by hand carved this rock in code, you know, but that it's actually scans of real environments or yeah. plants. So in a way this becomes something else, I think. Like this is a different relationship between the this kind of virtual model of a world um, that is crafted from like nothing somehow and um, or like just a semblance of a world we live in and like then actual scan integrating actual scans taking taking parts of the world we have and just playing around with them and transforming yeah. them into like a different constellations or yeah it's also really interesting there there these scans then also become really completely decontextualized de from their original environment and also it's kind of unclear how they came to be. Um, I'm pretty sure there is a very, very, very interesting story actually behind um, the libraries of 3D scans and people who go and actually do these scans. That would be a cool nature documentary. Okay, so you mentioned that parts of the landscape actually reference certain parts of the world, environments that you maybe also lived in. Yeah, can you tell a little bit more about what the land in uh, Volumes New Babylon looks like? Yeah, the main idea around that was to 
create a space that somehow relates to the nature or the environments that you can find here or where the exhibition will take place. Also to, um, to make it more surreal in a sense that uh, there are aspects of it which really fit in. So if it was set in uh, a desert or in the Siberian forest, it would, it would look a lot less familiar or maybe the surreal elements in it would, would uh, become more cartoony in a way. Uh, whereas if it kind of looks like Slovenia in the summertime, it becomes somehow strange in, in a very interesting way or surreal in a very interesting way. But I think that it is also somewhat related to um, something that I find inherently familiar um, and maybe also in a way always miss a little bit. But I think that's just something that I realized just now. But um, it definitely helps me kind of create this this element of strangeness in the video and, and the familiar within the unfamiliar. And I think it's really interesting that you're placing these ideas those are taken like from Constance work because he was Dutch and bringing them into this kind of landscape in a territory where the transformations, you know, former Yugoslavia or the Balkans and like how Balkans are anyway associated with, you know, we say Balkanization or something. So somehow something is being deconstructed or taken apart to be assembled anew or something like that. So I guess these ideas in situated in this context gain like a more of a political edge, they become somehow the question of question of ethics or like a question of values or like how do you plan, how do you restructure, like what's the world that you actually want to build and for whom. Do you find placing these ideas in this context also a way of how to situate them in a certain uh, way just to critique their freedom or neutrality or them being universal or no, somehow general. Yeah, it's. I don't think it's necessarily universal, but there is definitely something there about this idea of continuous transformation having uh, being looked at as a utopia or as a space for possibility or as the reality of a crisis or the combination of all of these things. So I think within this political context, which can't escape necessarily from transformation or where transformation and this balkanization is presented and experienced in this kind of crisis way and kind of having to fight that or um i think it's also something that is quite interesting in kind of contrast to this utopian okay let's build a better world after the second world war um type of situation the landscape you you build, it's all even though it's taken from libraries or like it's made out of some kind of generic models that in a way it's still you still relate it to existing contexts or existing places in the world and like their histories and also related back to your your own history of living in a different context and moving around and having this nomadic life in a way that yeah yeah it's which is inescapable and not necessarily in a position of uh, the creative uh, proactive playful individual who's just manifesting their desires but then you can also twist it around like that and kind of uh, appropriate that in a way <laughs> so that's why you also were, were mentioning like that founding ground grounding within this context of displacement or like constant nom no nomadism is is important yeah it's i th i see it completely as a ontological framework that kind of enables you to see things from a very familiar and very unfamiliar place at the same time yeah and and um, being a stranger everywhere where you go and when you go back to somewhere if that exists <laughs> then you're still in this uh, position so the only thing that exists is kind of ground groundlessness and then trying to embrace that I think that a lot of the ideas that that appear in my work and the participatory nature of it and kind of the maybe even somewhat weird and uncomfortable parts are somewhat influenced by that and it's really interesting to be here and actually talk about that the video that's in the show it's not an animation but it's an actual 3D 
model that you can navigate through. So you can like place objects in it. So you had to actually build a world or part of it, parts of it to create this video. Um, so I mean, how does this differ from illustrating a vision of a world? Constant made paintings. It's not the same. He didn't do like, mm-hmm. um, architectural, like, like, I don't know, um, like constructivist environments, right? Yeah, but I do think that Constant's um, um, work is is closer to um, the Unreal Engine type of world building actually than creating an illustration because I think what he's doing is this type of world building, which is actually quite similar to um, the way that world building in this filmmaking sci-fi industrial complex is done, where you create a situation, a world, you build a world that would jumpstart the narrative and you don't write out the narrative and then build images that correspond to this narrative properly. And I think that, um, even though it's, you can, I think that you can actually do this through painting or, or, um, rock circles or, um, that it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, Unreal Engine, but Unreal Engine is something that is really used for this, that you, build an environment and then something will happen in, in it. Maybe the end result is a game, maybe the end result is a sandbox world where this uh, which is permanent on a server and this happens every day with the players doing it or maybe it happens at a film set and the outcome is a movie or maybe it happens just conceptually as in Constance's work. Uh, but I think that this is a very very kind of close relationship. There are a lot of uh, I can imagine in like Dutch museums, uh, a VR version, you know, like an interactive VR version of Constance's work, but it's really not about that. You know, it's not about like seeing it in VR, having an illustration of it in VR. It's, it's about creating a space that enables this to somehow manifest or come to life. Your work always also includes some spatial rearrangements or like some environments. You don't do just like a virtual environment or like a virtual world, but somehow a spatial installation and both of these mediums let's say either like creating an interior or like an ambient or like creating a game space somehow they're both like mean they, they both have the same approach but like just like you know with different tools so maybe that means that also like creating physical installations or like sculptural installations can be seen from this more of a infrastructural angles. What you were explaining, it, it reminded me a lot about medium design, you know, what Keller is telling, so something like that, that like you make a certain change uh, in physical space that will then jumpstart a different yeah. narrative. Yeah, this is also why I said that for me it's more interesting to work within the confinements of, let's say, um, the art world, because if, if it becomes something, because within that actually I realized that I can't do that. I can create like an application and create an, uh, where people can connect and then create an environment for that application. Or I can create a volume that will jumpstart a narrative where uh, people who come to the exhibition space will somehow interact with this, but not in this like push the button and then it starts raining type of way, but maybe in unexpected ways. But I feel like if it's a, an actual speculative infrastructure project, then the implementation of that becomes very, very difficult and uh, somewhat deceptive, whether it is possible or not. And then this whole idea of, of this creating a possibility space then kind of goes back into, okay, maybe we can write an article about it. But I think as a practitioner, for me, this is more interesting to actually be able to to set the parameters in this infrastructure space. Yeah, but I think like it's also like a really nice um, remark or a realization about the function or the role of art spaces or galleries or like white cube, the neutral white cube, which is such a problematic architectural um, case study today. Like, like yeah. also, it, it, it is a certain location. It's a specific site somehow, if you look at it through a wider social historical context. But at the same time, it can be this volume. So if we perceive an exhibition space as a volume where certain new experiences um, or like arrangements of relationships or like fragments of a certain world, new world can be tested out in the same way as you can test it out with like some 
digital world building tools. I think that's like a really cool point because then any exhibition, as you said, even if it's a painting show, you know, actually already does that, just maybe doesn't really um, acknowledge it or use it in a way that it would create a different experience. So I really like this way of thinking about art shows as well. So, yeah. and like, what, what then is the role even of museums and why do we need to physical spaces? Because um, I think like with your work, I find that really interesting that this physical part is like very, very important. It's not just there to decorate the space that we still maintain just because we get public funds or whatever, you know, but we would much rather live in a virtual space with Oculus Rift than like, you know, forget about the body and blah, blah. But no, you know, it's like, Actually, these are also sites of rehearsing or training or like just testing out different um, world possibilities or something like that. But in this installation in Osmosa, you said that there are other actors or agents that take the center stage, that it's not the, you know, the viewer as this user anymore. Yeah, I see them. Um, there's a series of sculptures that are occupying the space that should be occupied by people or should be played with by people. And I see them as kind of intermediaries between the people and the world. So they, in the way they are occupying this space together is the best way that I can explain. And the objects are like somehow like a playground or some kind of architectural elements or? The objects are a combination of architectural elements that appear a lot in avant-garde architecture movements. And I was interested, again, to combine them with something that I think would fit in a very straightforward way, but um, creates kind of anachronism, which is a kind of fairy tale slash uh, mythological element. So they are playground elements, but they are all somewhat alive or have something to do with being alive or something that is a recurring trope in certain fairy tales, like... Uh, a structure that is on chicken feet, which happens a lot in uh, Baba Yaga fairy tales. Then there is labyrinth, which is also this kind of mythical element where um, then, of course, the tower as a response also to this very, very provocative title, a bunch of doors that lead into other doors. So these kind of anachronistic elements that create this weird space in between these two worlds that can kind of connect them. That was the idea. And also, so these cultures create also add something that um, seems to be forgotten a lot in, in uh, urban institutopias, which is actually that people like fairy tales and like stories and relate to them and build kind of familiar, familiarity to a space through them. And that was also something that I tested within this world building project, how that works together or how these intermediary spaces can connect the, the two worlds. And these intermediary spaces also have, have this magical quality to it, right? So, I mean, is, like, what's the role of these world-building technologies that you're using in navigating this divide if, you know, we kind of presuppose that this divide actually exists? But, yeah. Like, you know, there's a lot of, recently there's a lot, a lot of, especially in art, returning to magic, to rituals, yeah. to somehow pre-modern, pre-technological ways of existence, but at the same time also thinking about technologies as being like super mystified as some kind of magic, magic trick if you don't understand how it works. So I don't know, like, how do you, I mean, just like, what would be your comment on this relationship between what's real, what's magical, like, where does technology stand between this divide? And how does this play in your work? Why, like, why these magical elements? Why to include them at all? What's their role in this story? I think that they are, they are just necessary for things to work. Of course, not in the sense that, like, you push the button again and something plays, but in a sense of, of, of having intuitive knowledge of the world, which kind of plays part in, I think, also setting these parameters. You know, it's not like the parameters are set technologically, but then something happens. And I'm really, I think that this is also something in games that I talk to a lot of people and there's something magical about them. You know, there's just something extremely captivating, but there's also something you can't really describe. And I think that that's also something that I want to explore. And I think that you can only do that through, um, art forms actually or or through something also that's not 
necessarily verbal. And um, yeah, this type of intuitive knowledge making is something that I wanted to add to it or something that happens also in this um, architect character as well. Where does this kind of knowledge sit um, within this whole world? And it's definitely not something else. It's definitely not something that, um, you know, is separate from this. It's, it's there. It's always been there. It's not, I think we have, we have a tendency to talk about it as this kind of exotic thing and, and, um, talk about the loss of it, but this doesn't, I, I don't necessarily agree that this is the case. It's also the, uh, back to the situation is the unconscious element of the city <laughs> is, I think, definitely connected to that. And this uh, idea that they are also looking for it, that they dress up and take masculine and then go into the city and look for this. Yeah. <laughs> so big tangible. So that know. the stones would speak. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> 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 I was just uh, curious if we have, I know, one topic uh, that you think that within the art world is under-researched or undervalued or one topic that you is very important for you but you didn't have the chance to I know include in your research project so far. Maybe I don't know, what do you think? Are the topics that are missing? Yeah, it sounded like you actually know which <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, such a, it's such a crazy question because you know like topic like every I can like yeah, it's, I mean, go on Instagram and you will find every single topic. Some of them are there's a lot of them like magic and yeah, maybe No, I know. I know it's kind of a random question. I know. I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated by, for example, I know the TikToks you see, and I know these kind of questions that also work like games, and um, mm-hmm. that was one of them. I think that in this kind of podcast format, sometimes, yeah, we we don't ask these kind of questions. But but maybe if I can proceed, I, I don't really yeah, have like. Let's, um, let's talk about TikTok. I'm on TikTok. <laughs> I'm interested in how, how I can use it. I'm interested in how, how you know, also teaching uh, a generation who, you know, basically grew up with TikTok. It's insane. Um, I mean, I, what, what I really cherish about TikTok is how they test, uh, how they test uh, seemingly unsensical things. It's kind of like totally random experimentation can produce something valuable or, or sometimes you're really like, wow, this uh, is important in a way. And I'm reminded here speaking of this kind of amateur production, how even in this book by Valentina Tani, you probably know her, art historian, uh, Italian, she has this book, Meme Aesthetica. And She writes how, for example, I know, um, like this, uh, this approaches to doing art by the avant-garde who are kind of organically, uh, reproduced by the amateur, uh, I know, groups or people just inhabiting the web. It's interesting to see how they are unconsciously, uh, like, doing the same kind of experimentations without knowing that I know this is Dadaistic practice or I know or just being aware that Netflix is the most avant-garde um, uh, movie platform that could be imagined, I know, 50 years back. So it's interesting to just like pay attention to the shifting of the landscape, I think. Yeah, yeah. I also think that there is an interesting... Um, the problem is that everything gets absorbed by something very strange. Um, and, like, we don't... Well, I don't want to go into this post-capitalist discourse, but, you know, there is... A, this collective world-building thing is extremely interesting. Like, even on TikTok, mm-hmm. but, it, like, in games, MMORPGs, mm-hmm. Minecraft is, is fucking mind-blowing. Like, it's amazing. But then I'll even... You know, in you get Facebook um, metaverse and stuff, and it just gets appropriated in really, really bad ways. So that it gets also difficult to talk about it without taking that into account, and then without having to to talk about Facebook metaverse and these, these things. You know, <laughs> but uh, but even yeah, the feta, like that's that. It, it's such an interesting um, collaborative way of of doing things. 
it has its problems, but at the same time, it always has a lot of potential. So, like, I mm-hmm. mean, you shouldn't, like, reject one technology or tools just because mm-hmm. they are misused in a way because it still have like, a lot of potential for, like, yeah, this kind of collective world building or... But maybe also this type, this is also where this intuitive knowledge comes into place, you know, being someone who has, like, also through research and, uh, and my job and in general, like, even as a game designer, as an educator, I need to engage with emerging technologies. But then at some point, there are things that are, that you need, that I think where, where this intuitive, um, idea without going too much into conspiracy or, but even that is okay to some extent, obviously not this kind of crazy stuff. You have to say, I have a, like, like I said about AI, that I have this, I can't stomach it, you know, and I can't talk about the speculative um, potentials and how it works that much because I can't beyond, go beyond this big red, red flag that I see about it, you know? But isn't like, you know, talking about intuition, it can be a bit tricky as well because it kind of means that maybe like, is it something that you should also use in games that wanna be alternative or wanna wanna produce an alternative experience or an alternative world? Should you use these mechanisms where you target, like with the structure of the game or the narrative or the soundscape or whatever the mm-hmm. ambience, the unconscious parts mm-hmm. of the or is that like a no-go? Is that like a forbidden territory? It's such a um it's such a big part of game design that I think it's in I feel like a lot of game designers would agree with me and a lot of game designers would kill me if I would say this. But um, this is also why ethics is such a big part of kind of discourse around game design. And so many um, books are written about the ethics of these things. It's not necessarily about, you know, you shoot, you shoot avatars and then you turn into a psychopath. It's about um, um, that you are inherently designing values into games and it can't be seen as an isolated thing because the way that they work, they are these hands-on experiences that you don't have time to interpret and whatever you are actually in that world. You're not, you are outside, but you're also within it and you're not um, thinking about it or whatever, but it is kind of, it can be very easily addictive or I don't know, but it's beyond that. It, it, It is that it's also kind of, replicating certain design patterns and and it is this very kind of direct uh, unconscious way of interacting with something that's what like also situation is critiqued about the spectacle but then it was media spectacle like tv or whatever mm-hmm. like because it immerses you so much that you're not unable to reasonably you know think about what you're actually receiving and what actually becomes part of your of your experience and thinking and so on like how these values are somehow planted into your minds are there any other tools like are there actual like attempts at even changing the way how this experience is produced not just talking about which values should be actually trained or rehearsed yeah it's hard it's it's really hard to teach as well because um it's this intention versus the end product and this is really not just about games you know if you think about facebook or any kind of uh this emergence tech product where you set parameters and then something happens um, is something like that. So even in teaching it, and a lot of the students are super interested in gamification, for example, and they want to work in this because they want to do something that's related to real life and then they want to do good things, you know, and then kind of uh, creating this approach where, where you need to, you can't just decide that you're going to do something good. Um, and then if this is going to be a good thing that helps people with this and that, of course it can be that, but it's really tricky to, to make something actually work like that, but also to not get completely, um, blocked by being scared that it's going to be something bad, (laughs) you know? And I think that that's also this kind of loss of ground that it's hard to navigate. But just going back to this um, magic reality somehow, not divide, but let's say spillover. Um, like when watching your video um, for these volumes on your Babylon installation, these rocks, these stones are in a circle. And of course, you coming from UK, I was like, Stonehenge, you know. 
And uh, it's funny because it's kind of magical because we don't know the actual uh, purpose of it. Somehow we speculate about it. So it's like a circle you enter to speculate about a certain world or society that built it or, you know, so how, somehow it's, it's an opening for this imagination. So for this magic to happen, for this non-existent world to emerge somehow. But at the same time, then I read this really, really interesting, um, uh, news, news article about how actually um, they simulated how sound uh, works within this structure and that it actually is like a stone-built technology for amplification of sound. So it's actually like a big um, sound amplifier. I thought like that's super interesting because already the arrangement of stones that seems magical also is somehow a technology that does something in the world and yeah, thinking about architecture as a certain kind of technology that creates change within the world or like jumpstarts a narrative. I think that like it, it's really cool connection, just like as a comment that I'm not sure if you have, like if you were thinking about Stonehenge, but like yeah, just when seeing your video that came to it's mind. One, there's one in a park, uh, of course, a lot more recent one. Um, in a park near my house. Yeah. <laughs> which I'm completely baffled by all the time that I'm there. And it was really nice. There were like jazz concerts inside of it. And I thought, that, yeah, this is a cool space. And I, I was thinking actually about that park when I was, I was working on this and the subconscious element of the city. And I thought that it's a great image. And also they are found everywhere across the world, which I think is also quite interesting that we somehow have this urge to put things, put objects into a circle and then sit in the middle of it. <laughs> and uh, I don't know whether it's a technology or not, but that's also, I think, an interesting question, you know, thing that does it have to be a technology? Is it in itself a technology? Just that it, it, it exists. But I really also love the idea that it was um, a club or, or an ancient set of... Uh, for the Mandalorian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like, it's funny, like with this, like, um, a circle, yeah, like that you kind of delineate the space, right? Like you create a site from like an open world situation. And then that also can be like a shield, right? So like you create like kind of a bubble where this, you know, certain things can be said and tested out, let's say. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like a protective shell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but I mean, I was interested in Constance, uh, influ- that he was influenced by a uh, gypsy community in Italy. That was quite interesting, especially if we talk about Stonehenge, because it's like... Gypsies are also actors in, I know, the Lesson Guitaris, Thousand Plateaus, and like, uh, this nomadic subjectivity, whatever. And Stonehenge, when I was reading about David Graeber's work and another author, this combined work together, I think it was his recent work about, um, how we have this transition from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural society wrong, that this transition was not so smooth or linear. And so, for example, we can interpret Stonehenge as kind of a liminal technology as well, because people uh, and groups shifted seasonally. So, for example, they were, I know, in the spring and summer hunter-gatherers and then in the winter and autumn agriculture community so it's interesting to like um to see uh, how transitory yeah yeah i just be. started reading that book the most recent mm-hmm. one after after um i was uh, participating or listening to an eight-hour conversation <laughs> during a dinner about it um but i think that yeah this it's, it's, of course, it's a totally absurd idea to think that we went from this to this and it was like this linear progression. And this is also the problem uh, with a lot of um, books about creativity and play and games that are were written in the 40s and 50s and 60s, that this is exactly the type of understanding that they have about creativity that we used to play in this way and then we started playing in a different way and then that enabled us to create civilization. And then, and it's just very, very hard to read this. 
yeah, I really like this. These kind of also objects that pinpoint them. Maybe if we can't place it within this narrative, then that probably this object exists and we created the narrative. Then maybe the narrative is a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it? And maybe a final question: You teach a course at the faculty about game design. So how is the course differently structured than a usual? class or what kind of curriculum there is, what kind of assignments students have, uh, what is the dynamic in the classroom when I know, games or game design is being discussed? Um, it's a course where they learn game design and film, both, and they have to learn in the first year both and then, and then they choose one or the other. And the whole thing is based on the idea that they have to make something that every once in a while for every couple of months they need to come up with an idea and then make the actual game regardless of where they feel like their skills are. <laughs> that tends to be very, very chaotic, but it also forces them to think about things that they care about. It's really not the type of course where you can tick the boxes, not do anything and learn your things for your test and then finish it, but you have to actually care about it, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. And that just causes complete mayhem. Um, and it's, it's really, really interesting to see, and it's really, really interesting to, to talk to confused students and then go from, you know, this like, I want to engage with the real world and make a gamified something. Uh, one of the students was making gamified, actually, She's from Turkey, and she she was looking at social media and, and all of these um, future-telling applications, and then also comparing them with things like CoStar, and then her gamified uh, uh, but real-world application was was to create kind of a um, tea leaf reading app that also you can, you can maybe it's going to be an AR app that you put on the table and then and then you can read it and then it's like also tactile and having to solve all of these uh, conceptual and design problems at the same time and then also kind of think about how it will it would sit in the real world also in the context of all the other things that exist out there and having to deal with that also within um, three weeks you really can't do that without caring about the thing that you do and and the amount of care that that goes into, into this work is just incredible. This was Shumpod with Jelena Viskovic, interviewed by Max Valincic and myself, Tiasha Pogacar from Shum.